All right, before we jump into the message, would I just uh, ask that you uh, would uh, bow your heads as we pray. Uh, Lord, I just want to thank you for uh, this chance uh, to come together to study your word, to learn a little bit more about uh, what, uh, what you have for us, your perfect plan for us, so that we might be more and more transformed into the image of Jesus. And we're just praying, Lord, that you would do an amazing work here, challenge us through your word, and uh, just uh, draw us ever closer into your presence. Thank you, Lord, because I know we have been here with uh, heavy hearts, some, and tough situations in our families, and uh, sick people that we love who uh, just don't seem to get better. We come with so many burdens, Lord. And uh, what we're asking is that you would meet us in a special way, whether it's through the songs or the prayers or the, uh, the message, whatever it is, that you would meet us, you'd care for us, you would challenge us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last, uh, over actually last uh, couple of uh, weeks, we've been uh, doing this series talking about who we are as a church. And to kind of get us going here this morning, I want us to think about just how much of our time, our energy, and our creativity goes into thinking about making or managing or spending our money. Think of your life as a pie chart and just think how much of it is dedicated toward those pursuits, thinking about making, managing, spending. Then you take the rest of your time and you say, well, all right, what do I do with the rest of my time, which is really a smaller sliver? And you start to ask how much of the rest of my time is trying to enjoy the possessions that my money has purchased or working to preserve the status that my money has earned me? Or how much is going toward managing the responsibilities that my money has created for me? Even simply just managing the stuff that you've accumulated. And you start to see a smaller and smaller. In fact, your biggest wedge is going to be your sleep. And most of you, some of you are going to be like, well, yeah, but I... I have fitful nightmares about these things, so not even my sleep is my own. I can't even say that that is free from these worries. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, what if we got it wrong? What if we're thinking about things, valuing the wrong stuff in life? What if there are principles about money and possessions that could help us loosen the suffocating grip that money has on our lives. Now, last week we spoke about how we man the mission, how every person who's a follower of Christ is a priest in God's kingdom, and we're working to expand the bounds of the temple until it fills the whole of the earth with the presence of God. Today, we're talking about funding the mission, not, not merely manning it, but funding it. And I know that people don't like to talk about money, especially in church. The first service had a hard time making eye contact with me. And there are plenty of good reasons for this, of course, people had, for people to be skeptical or even angry about uh, what they've seen in the past, the abuses that they've experienced, 
uh, Christian leaders who have taken advantage of people. I remember growing up, they used to use this old term called fleecing the flock. Some of you have been around a bit. You might have heard of this term, fleecing for years. I never even knew what it meant, and you couldn't Google stuff back then. You know, it was like, I, we had like Encyclopedia Britannica, and it wasn't a heading in there. And so you're like, fleecing the flock? I don't even know what you're saying. Like this, so anyway, and I understand it. There's, there have been so many abuses that people get uncomfortable and we don't like talking about it. And just to put it out there for you, I don't like talking about it either. I really don't. And that may, this may very well be one of the most neglected topics at Beacon. And I think it's in part because I personally have been offended by churches growing up and the, the kind of a culture that they had created and the kind of emphasis they put on it and the way they sort of manipulated and, and cajoled and guilted people into giving, often even beyond uh, what they ought to have been doing. And so I've become, in my own way, sort of hardened about it. I also have to recognize the irony that every time I encourage you to give, I am one of the beneficiaries of that giving. And so the, uh, it can seem a little awkward or even self-seeking, you know. And so I think it's helpful sometimes for the record, just so you know, I don't set my salary. It's not like I'm like, you know, it's the summer. I'd like to go on vacation. I want to talk about money so we can pass the plate. And afterwards, I'm just going to go back there and divvy it up and stuff some in my pocket. It doesn't work like that. We have, we have a board of volunteers here who attend the church who are also givers themselves who actually set the annual budget. They set my salary. They set benefits. And so there isn't a nickel one way or the other that isn't under their accountability. So it's not like, you know, at the end of the service, I'm going to be like, you know, just pass it up here. <laughs> so just to be clear, because a lot of folks don't know how these things sort of work in our polity and so, you know, our church practice. So I just kind of get it out there for you uh, in case uh, you were wondering. I, I do, though, think it's ironic that I don't talk more about money because of the personal spiritual benefits that my wife and I have experienced. This happened to be one of the spiritual disciplines that we started very early in our lives together. When we were, I mean, I used to give when I was a kid, but not in any sort of consistent way and not of my own money. Like, you know, it was like money my parents would give me to, to give, just trying to teach me about it a little bit. But when we were in college and we had like really no money, my wife and I started this discipline. And over our lives, it has, been, it has produced a multitude of genuine spiritual benefits. And so here I am pastoring a church, and I rarely talk to you guys about it, which seems really uh, bizarre to me because it's one of the clearest ways of, experience, uh, of experiencing a, a deepening spirituality. And, and here I am largely not uh, talking about it. And I feel like I'm sort of giving, I'm not really giving you the full counsel of God because of like my own issues, you know. So you can consider this morning group therapy for me. Um, and interestingly, we now have statistics to back this up that, you know, this kind of uneasy feeling I've had about it. So you know that survey we'd done a while back and we collected a whole lot of data? Well, we asked about people's attitudes about giving and their practice and how long they've been attending the church and what churches they went to before Beacon, and here's what, I, here's what I found out in the data. If you learned your early principles of giving from a different church, you give more than you do if you have your entire Christian experience at Beacon. 
So if you have been largely shaped in your views on giving and generosity at Beacon, so that was kind of your first major church experience, or you didn't really have much of a church experience before, and you have been largely shaped by Beacon, you are behind in your generosity than the rest of the, the people who have come from another church, which means we have, we have statistical proof that I am failing you in this whole area, which is just awesome. Um, really great. So I'm going to try to correct some of I'm really glad we did that study. Uh, so I'm going to try to correct some of that this morning. We're going to talk about some principles, and I'm going to try to get some painfully specific in some other ways. So, so we start off by that, recognizing that Jesus and the rest of the Bible talk about money all the time. 15% of Jesus' teaching is about money and possessions. He teaches more about money than anything else, more than heaven, more than hell, 16 of his 38 parables, one out of 10 verses in the Gospels, 500 verses on prayer, 500 on faith, more than 2,000 on money and possessions. Why? Why so much? Because there is a deep, deep connection between our spiritual lives and the way we use our money. There's no getting around it. There is a deep connection, and you might try to separate them out. God says they're inseparable. The one will impact the other, and vice versa. So what is the biggest problem you feel when it comes to money? I mean, before you step foot in here, if I were to ask you this, your friend asks you, what is the biggest problem you feel when it comes to money? You do not have enough. That is exactly right. And of course, there is never enough. And it feel, you just think to yourself, if, that, if I could just, you know, it's easy to talk. It would be so much easier if I just had more money, then everything would be okay. And I think all of us feel like it so much so that recently I was praying. And I asked God, I said, God, how long is, is 10 million years to you? And clear as day, I heard God reply back to me, 10 million years, it's like, it's like one second. I thought about it, I prayed about it that day. The next day, I said, God, how much is $10 million to you? And clear as day, I heard God say to me, it's like one cent, it's like one penny. I thought about that, I prayed about that that day. And the next morning, I said, God, can I just have one? of your pennies. And I tell you, clear as day, I heard God said, sure, just, just wait a second. <laughs> True story. See, Jesus tells us there is an even bigger problem with our money. And the bigger problem is that you can't take it with you. That's actually the big problem. There's a, a, a parable in uh, Luke 12. Jesus is talking about this guy. Some of you will remember the story. He had this bumper crop. And he had all of this product that he now needed to do something with. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rip down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to invest in my infrastructure. I'm going to have all of this cash. I'm going to have all of this savings. I'm going to have all this safety in retirement. And he built these massive barns to store all of this incredible product that he was producing. And then in verse 20, 
the scriptures tell us, but God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. You fool. You spent all your time building this big thing, preparing for your future, and your future's over. That's it. He died. And you can't take it with you. Can you repeat that with me? You can't take it with you. You've heard the old story, John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who'd ever lived. After they say that uh, somebody asked uh, his accountant in like a press interview or something like that, they're like, so how much did, did, did Rockefeller leave? How much money did he leave? And his accountant apparently said, you know, that awesome quip. You remember what it was, right? He left all of it. He didn't take any with him. He left it all. It doesn't matter how much he left. He has none of it now. It's all left behind. And so maybe, you know, you die. Which, by the way, if that's the first time you're hearing that, I'm really sorry. I should be more, I should be more sensitive to you. You will die, and I'm sorry to tell you this. If, but you will die, or maybe Jesus is going to return and end this age, or either way, you're going to meet your maker. And all your money will then be useless. I'm getting a lot of my ideas for this message out of a book called The Treasure Principle. It's an awesome book by Randy Alcorn. It has been one of the most influential little books on stewardship and giving that I have ever read. Uh, And uh, a quote from that book says, when Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost, it's because wealth will always be lost. Either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die. No exceptions. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect our investment strategy. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong, it's just plain stupid. That's the bad news. There is good news. If you could open in a Bible to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. You've got to get to the good news because the bad news is bad. Got to get to the good news. Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 19, Jesus speaking. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So he picks up the same themes that we've already covered, but then he develops this other very awesome corollary. Verse 20, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Who who knew that this was a thing? I mean, imagine that. What, think about what he's saying here. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Imagine you went to your investment experts and said, hey, I got a thing. I want you to invest some of my resources in uh, heaven. They would be like, you've lost your mind. You're all, what are you talking about? You know, I could buy Google or Apple. Apple might be close to heaven, but that's it. Like, there ain't nothing. I can't get it into heaven for you. It's temporal. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You can't. You can. And do you, do you see, like, it, this is so important for us because Jesus isn't against you investing in your future. He's saying you can store it up for your future. He's not even telling us 
to, to, to simply do it for other people. There is an actual real benefit to you. You can invest in your future. The difference is he's just talking about the only future that matters because he's not looking 50 or 30 or 20 or for some of you 10 years down the line. He's, he's looking beyond that. He's saying for eternity. That's the future that he's talking about. You store it up for yourselves. And that's why this corollary is so important because you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And this is an incredible truth. Incredible truth. It's true. You're not going to be able to take soon. All of it will be worthless. Every dime in your account, every possession you own will be worthless. And for some of us, it will happen sooner than we could possibly hope or imagine. But you can send it on ahead. Randy Alcorn in another quote, he said, if we give instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal instead of in the temporal, we store up treasures in heaven that will never stop paying dividends. Whatever we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So let's get, let's get practical here. Let's start by rethinking the purpose of wealth. And I think a lot of the, our, our shifts and changes will have to come with a rethinking about the purpose of wealth. Just listen to this verse from 2 Corinthians. He says, he's, after saying that God will provide for you, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Wait, you will be enriched. So you will receive blessing from God. Why? So that you will be generous. That's not the way we think about money. When we get a whole windfall of cash, when we got you know, money in the bank or some sort of blessing or inheritance, whatever it is, we go, God, thank you for blessing me. And it is a blessing, but you see, our attitude is that God has given it to us because he wants to bless us. But you see, what if that's not the purpose of wealth? What if that wasn't why God gave it to you? It would be equally biblical, by the way, for you to think, wow, God gave me money. I wonder if this is a test. Because it could be. God could actually be putting you in a circumstance, in a situation where he's testing what you are becoming, who you are becoming, what your faithfulness is like. He could be. It would be just as biblical for you when you get a whole pile of cash to go, uh-oh, will I pass this test? It could be the same exact thing as when you're being tempted in any other way. You're feeling a temptation and you're, you're like, uh-oh, this is a tough situation. I better be on my guard. I better overcome this temptation, this trial. The same thing. You get a whole pile of money. What if our first reaction was, uh-oh, will I be faithful in this moment? Not because we're scared of God, but because we recognize that he tests us and that the world tempts us away from him. That the enemy is looking for opportunities to break us down. And this is one of the ways it could be done. Or maybe God is giving, not, and this is from the words of Randy again, not so that you could raise your standard of living, but so that you can raise your standard of giving. 
Why is it that every year, as soon as you get a, a, an increase and you get a little extra money, you look at your budget and you go, oh, now I can spend it here, right? And you'll say, no, 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 I save it. Okay, so you spend it on your future. That's all saving is, right? You're just spending it on your future. It's the, but why, why instead do we not just say, you know what, I'm actually good where I'm at. My standard of living is actually perfectly fine and sufficient. Anything I get above it could actually just be given away now. I've heard of Christians who have actually gotten to the point where they're giving away far more money than they keep for themselves because they just stopped with their standard of living and said, now it's time to increase my standard of giving. Or maybe you might think to yourself, God has given me so much because the need is so great, because there's such an incredible kingdom work to do. And now he's letting me participate in it in a significant way. Maybe you're supposed to be funding the work of God with those resources. So I just wonder sometimes, and I fear that many of us are not really asking the right questions when it comes to money. We just fell into a groove that our, our parents and our society and our peers told us was the right thing, and we just fell into this, this, right, this rat race. And we're not challenging any of these cultural assumptions and trying to figure out what is it that the scriptures teach us? What is it that God is calling us to? All right, so now how do we give? What is the basic biblical teaching? The basic biblical teaching is tithing, the tithe. 10% was required in the Old Testament of all the people, rich and poor. That's because it's neat, because God doesn't expect us all to kind of give the same amount. He actually expects us to give in proportion to the way that he has blessed us. And so if you have less, the tithe costs less. Now, it might cost you more because you have less, but it's a percentage, and God says, listen, there is 10% that is to go to the work of the, of the temple, and there's 90% that we talk about later. But the 10% was a proportion that he had given to his people because the tithe is actually God's plan to take care of the temple, to provide for the, the paid clergy, to help the poor. And that's how it happened. The tithe, a tenth of everything that the Israelites produced, earned. Flat out, nice and straight, easy math. Now many will say that the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. And that is sort of true and sort of not true. Usually they're trying to say, well look, it's not really a New Testament thing, that's an Old Testament thing. But Jesus does affirm tithing in the New Testament, and importantly, he never undoes it. There were lots of things that Jesus said, you know what, this isn't actually the way we're going to have to worry or function or think about these things anymore. There's a better way under the new covenant. He never did that with tithing. He never did it with giving. In fact, all of the examples of giving, especially the ones that Jesus recognizes as New Testament kinds of examples, are way beyond the tithe, way beyond the tithe. That's something for us to really be considering here. How does the tithe fit in? What's the baseline? Where do I start? What is the likelihood that New Testament Christians would be required to give less than our Old Testament counterparts? What's the likelihood? Just think through that a second because when is, do you find something in the Old Testament, like loving people? 
in the New Testament, are we supposed to love people more or less than they love people in the Old Testament? Holiness, are we supposed to be less holy than our counterparts in the Old Testament or more? Justice, are we supposed to fight for justice less than our Old Testament counterparts were or more? It's more every time on everything that matters. It is more. Because now we have the power of the Spirit. We have the resurrection power of Christ deposited in us through the Spirit inhabiting us. We actually have been given more. And to whom much is given, much is required. This is an incredible truth found throughout the New Testament. You could ask God, if you want to do some business with God, which I would encourage you to do, you could say, God, do you really expect less of me? Now, living in one of the wealthiest nations the world has ever known, do you really expect less of me than you did of even the poorest Israelite in an agrarian culture who were dependent on famines and, and drought and could be wiped out in a single year? Do you really expect less from me? I think these are good and important questions. This is serious business because the tithe is the starting point. It is not the end point. It is the tra it's the training wheels for us as followers of Christ. And it's serious because in the book of Malachi, God actually talks about the withholding of the tithe and he accuses the Israelites of robbing him. That's how he viewed it, that they had robbed God. They had robbed the work of the temple. They had stolen that money from the poor from the mission, from the temple. That's how he viewed it. He robbed God. That's why some people say, you know, we have to kind of start slow with the tithe and work our way up. It's like, well, you know, in the book, Randy actually says, it's like saying, you know, this year I, I robbed six stores. Next year I'll cut it down to four. You know, it's like you would never do that. You'd be like, that's robbing. You can't do that. That's stealing. I'm not going to do that. I should start at exactly where God told me to start. So here are some statistics. They say the average American gives... Not 10% of their income, that's the tithe. The average American gives between 2 and 3% of their income. Many Christians, of course, claim to tithe. Even in our research at Beacon, 40% of our congregation says that they tithe. And now you can kind of turn that around in your head and you can say, all right, what's the average income in Nassau County? And this might be helpful for you when you kind of evaluate your own. It's, it's a little more pragmatic you know, sometimes the math and the numbers get a little bit uh, out there for us. But the average annual income in our area is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about $120,000 for a household. $100,000 is the average for Nassau, this area, a little centrally located. Um, I know and that the averages mean that some people are making three hundred dollars and some people are making $20,000. I understand that. And so you know where you're at. You understand, you know, kind of what your financial situation is. But if you take the average, that means that the average person in Nassau County, the tithe would be $12,000. So $120,000 a year, a tithe of that, a tenth of that, $12,000. $1,000 a month or $230 a week. So you could think about what your practice is, what your discipline is. So I took the, the congregation and I took the top, I think 280 something giving units at, at Beacon, families at Beacon who give. And I just averaged it. Just thinking, you know, we probably have a representative sample here at the church in Nassau County. What's the average? Now, keep in mind, I know, again, the averages get funny. Some of you, this applies, and some of you won't apply. But just, just hear these numbers. I found them interesting. Our congregation, 
gives just under $2,600 a year as a giving unit, 2,600, which is 216 a month, which is 50 a week, which means the average person at Beacon, if you reversed it out, would live on about $25,000, $28,000 a year. And I know some do. It's just not possible that it's the majority of us. It just can't be. And so somehow in national statistics and even in our survey, it, we have this idea of tithing, but not the practice of it. We say, yes, yes, that's probably what I'm going to do next year. <laughs> so I'll mark yes, but it can't, it can't actually be the case. Not when you look at some of these numbers. And when you consider that tithing is God's plan for funding the mission, you start to realize why the stakes are so high. Now, there's all sorts of other questions, right? What do we tithe off of? Net, gross, dividend income, interest income, benefits, retirement. How do we factor all of these things in? Lots of questions, I understand. And you're going to have to work hard at trying to figure out what it is that you think that God is calling you to. I think that at the very least, I think in terms of giving, of tithing off of uh, gross earnings and any of your interest or, in, or dividend kinds of incomes. Um, it would be very similar to how if you were a farmer and you were, you know, growing apples and you'd have 10 and one of them would be your tithe. If you had 10 sheep, one of them would be your tithe. It would be straightforward as thinking about it like that. It's also the practice that my wife and I began all of those years ago when we were in college, which was really actually a lot easier back then because you had 100 bucks your whole week or month, and you'd be like, oh, here's 10 bucks. What's the big deal? It's, I'm poor. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, we had no money anyway. We were eating ramen. So, like, it, you know, that was it. Like, it was 10 bucks. It was no. And then, and then as you grow and your income goes up, and all of a sudden you see the number growing up, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's actually a lot bigger number than, uh, than, uh, than, I, than I'm that I want to do. <laughs> and so uh, that starts to happen. But, you know, you start the practice, you see how it goes, and then you see what God actually does in return. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Where do people tithe? Well, I think that the tithe goes to the local church. That also has been our practice uh, for me and my wife, that it goes to the local church. And uh, for us, that goes back again to the practice of uh, both what we see in the Bible as well as the actual need of the local church to do the mission in its community. And how else could it be done um, other than that? Now, beyond the tithe, once you get past the 10%, you have to ask yourself, what about the 90%? And this is where free will offerings come in. Throughout the Bible, people responded to needs as God led them. And so how much should a person give? don't know. It's a free will offering. That's between you and God. And it means that the other 90% we hold before God and we let him decide what we're supposed to do. It creates a conversation with God. It also creates an accountability with God and a dialogue that helps to jostle free the idols that we have in our deeper soul. This is a huge and important thing for us to do. And I know for some, this is going to sound absolutely crazy because you think, you're already talking about a tithe. What, how could you possibly imagine anything past that? And yet, many, many do. So when you decide that you're going to give to Team World Vision or you're going to help out with the Crisis Pregnancy Center or your small group, 
you know, you have a need in your small group and somebody's hurting financially and you just gather up some resources and, and you give it to them. We have people here, they gave a car to another family in need. Somebody sponsored a, uh, a person who uh, was going on the missions trip, paid for it all outright because their family uh, was a little bit tight on cash. And all this kind of stuff happens all the time, all around you. And it should happen all the time in my life and in our lives. It's a free will offering. And we say, you know what? Let God choose who he wants to bless through me. Only God is going to be able to answer that. And just help. It's awesome for us to remember that God isn't simply keeping track of what you give. The scriptures indicate that he is. He's also keeping track of what you keep. There's a part of this that should factor in. How we decide to handle the other 90% is still in play. And then finally, treasure in heaven. We learn in Matthew and Malachi and other places that God actually does keep track of all of the smallest acts of kindness. He keeps track of these things as if the picture is that there's a scribe in heaven with a great big book and he's like, oh, Dan, thanks, that was, that was awesome. We'll talk about that when you get here. Thank you so much for that, John. That was fantastic. Let me just make a little note here. We'll talk about that when you get here. That's the picture that the, I don't know if there's literally a guy up there. I think I imagine they've upgraded past scrolls, but I, you know, I don't know what they're doing up there. But, but the point is that the scriptures point, they paint a picture where God remembers these things. Jesus promises us literally a 10,000% return on these investments. That's what he says. 10,000, a hundredfold is what he is going to, he's going to produce for us as treasure in heaven. The bike you give to the neighbor kid, the, the baby bottles that you fill, the checks you write to the church or to missionaries, all of these things being recorded in heaven, knowing that when we handle money faithfully, Christ will give us true riches in eternity, true treasure in heaven, to know that because we give, eternity will be different for us and others. That's incredible. See, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Some of you know Jim Elliott. He was a missionary who, you know the name Jim Elliott. He was a missionary who gave his life. And he said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're not a fool. You're not going to hold on to it. You can't keep it here. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 